Hello, and welcome to Supply Chain Next. I'm your host, Richard Donaldson. Join me as we explore the ongoing evolution of supply chain, from the challenges practitioners face every day to the ongoing digital transformation of the entire value network. And good morning, and welcome to the next episode of Supply Chain Next. I am excited this morning to have a uh, uh, Bill Shevlin. Uh, from Santa Cruz and CEO of uh, Microgrids here coming on this morning, Mavericks Microgrids, uh, which I think, and again, I'm going to ask you the random question already, Bill, is Mavericks akin to the Maverick Surf site since it's just up the street? Yeah, we uh, we named it after that, you know, because it's one of the most impressive, powerful waves uh, on the planet that we know of. And, uh, you know, it's continual and it doesn't stop. And, uh, you know, we're going to create a wave of uh, energy that washes over the U.S. with our microgrids. Love it. I love it. I, 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 okay, I had to start with that very first one. So, <laughs> so welcome this morning. I know it's early in, the, in Santa Cruz. I uh, appreciate you getting up and kind of get going with me this morning here. So let's just dive right in. Um, you know, there, there's uh, would love to hear a little bit about, you know, kind of your history and background. Because uh, it's pretty interesting bringing you all the way to where you get to Mavericks microgrids. Um, but yeah, I mean, we'd love to hear a little bit just the opening around who Bill Bill Shevlin is and and how you kind of got started and 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 how your the beginning of your career began. Sure. Yeah. No, I appreciate the time, Richard. It's great being talking to you and being on the podcast. Um, you know, I started out in my career in real estate development and management. Uh, we you know we built buildings mostly in commercial uh, and uh, uh, office retail and always built around the efficiency standards in the industry. And in uh, 2008, uh, was it 2000, I think, joined a company that was focused in commercial roofing. And uh, we went out and we uh, utilized energy efficient roofing, which is now referred to as cool roofing. Um, I actually went out and uh, worked with the California Energy Commission, Lawrence Berkeley Labs, to prove that uh, it saved energy. We did some calculations on it, and you know we would sell roofing based on an, on a return on investment, which was different. <laughs> we also developed some of the initial rebates, and a lot of what we did became Title Twenty Four standard in, in building envelopes um, throughout the U.S. Um, from there, I actually uh, worked with a national company, and we developed a solar program back in 2008, 2009. Uh, we used to do a lot of corporate uh, national accounts for Walmart, Kohl's, Marriott's, companies like that, where we uh, did on-site energy generation, um, offsetting customers' bills. We'd essentially mm -hmm. go in. Uh, figure out how to decarbonize their portfolio before people really knew what that meant mm -hmm. <laughs> and also reduce their energy costs at the same time by uh, putting renewable assets on site. Mm -hmm. um, one of the issues that I had with that was always working with the utilities and, and dealing with the long delay of being able to connect that solar project and feed it into the grid so we could offset that meter. And when I first started installing solar commercially, the costs were about $8 a watt, and they got down into the, about the $1.50, uh, $1.75 per watt range. Um, and I saw batteries doing the same, following that same expense curve. And so I really, 2018, really took a deep dive on the microgrid space and looking not just at uh, the technologies, but what was going on in the markets as far as what was going to be taking place that were energy intensive uses. Um, you know, obviously EVs were a very inten energy intensive uses, data, data centers, 
and uh, controlled environmental ag. And so that's where we spent a lot of our initial focus. Um, you know, now we're really focused on uh, decarbonizing a site, but using that strategy to also decarbonize uh, vehicles and transportation, which means that we can touch the entire uh, supply chain by offsetting a customer, creating strategies for them, and then implementing those, those EV technologies. And even uh, in some cases, now we're talking about uh, larger sites that will generate hydrogen, and then we can uh, offset the the supply chain on the hydrogen side as well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, 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 and as you said, and I want to kind of highlight a couple things going back through that. You know, are you a lifelong resident of Santa Cruz? Let me just sort of start there. Yeah, yeah. Grew up, yeah. grew up around here, and uh, you know, a lot's changed <laughs> since I well, grew up here. It was really a lot. East town versus uh, a hub of Silicon Valley now. Absolutely. Um, I mean, and, and and with that, then. Kind of my, you know, you 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 said, and you're absolutely right. You are a little, little bit. You are quite a bit ahead thinking about sustainability in the context of roofing and building materials and things of that nature. And so, is that also kind of a result of being in the environment that you're in, or is that something that you always kind of just naturally fell towards? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, you, you grow up in a in a community like Santa Cruz where you can be in the redwoods in 15 minutes in the ocean, uh, you know, on the opposite, or we can drive an hour and a half and be in the Sierras and, and be in the snow. Um, mm-hmm. you know, always grew up around the environment. Um, when I was a senior in high school, actually, uh, was involved in a program that, uh, we went out and we taught special Olympics athletes. We built ropes courses. We learned how to rock climb, um, you know, we were really out in the environment a lot. And, uh, you know, so growing up around that, I uh, wanted to make sure that what I was doing made an impact, but uh, also really, really good at math uh, from a from a young age. And so, you know, I saw the cost benefit of saving energy, um, mm-hmm. you know, really started out in the efficiency space and then got into the renewable space because what we've seen and, and what we're continuing to see is when we work at a site and we provide energy infrastructure, we can deliver power cheaper, faster, better than the utility, and we can do it cleanly, um, and we can get really good returns on it that then allows us to sell some of that excess energy to the grid and do a lot of different things. Um, you know, what we're kind of right at the forefront of in the transportation and electrification market is really decentralization and the digitization of electricity um, mm-hmm. is, is really where we're at. It's one of the last remaining infrastructures that hasn't been upgraded. Right. Um, well, and then let me, let me, let me, and this is another thing and I'm kind of drawing a little bit on my former experience, in the data center space, a lot of energy <laughs> consumption. Um, but, but you also hit on a point that a lot of people, I don't think are they're maybe casually aware, but they need to understand is the grid itself, Oh my goodness, is is what, 60, 70, 80 years old in some places? I mean, it's sort of like plumbing, you know, where we take it for granted till it breaks, but the grid itself is extremely archaic and yeah. you know, it needs a lot of lot of upgrades. Well, and there's no there's no visibility to it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and what I mean by that is in a computer network, you can see what's going on, you can see where the traffic is, you can see if you have an issue with the with the network. With electricity, we really don't. There's no visibility into the greater grid. And if a section goes down, the way that they go and they find it is that a person drives out in a truck. They look at the they look at the lines and they will manually, you know, when they have to turn something on and off, they have to manually 
climb up the pole or get a right. get a hook and turn a switch on and off manually. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when we install a project, we have to use new technology. You know, we have to use stuff mm -hmm. that we can we can monitor every panel. We can monitor the cell on the panel. We can turn the the entire system on and off remotely. We know exactly what's going on, and the utilities haven't made those investments into the grid uh, right. like most energy companies have of today. Yeah, right, right. And 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 so again, I think that's also a key point to this is you know it's it's like roads or again I go back to plumbing and sewage. I go this core infrastructure, which a lot of people take for granted, is honestly quite old, right? Yeah. It, it and it's expensive to change, but it needs to change. Um, and, and, you know, but it's a long time coming. It's kind of like sustainability. Like, like, right. you know, you've been talking about for 30 years, we should have been doing this 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. Um, but for some reason, you know, humanity is fairly slow, but whatever, we'll leave that aside for a second. Um, usually it requires. That could be, that could be a long conversation right there. Yeah, right, 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 right. I don't want to get too far into that one, but, but let me go back to, because you also, you know, talked about it, you kind of flew over it. But, you know, you were in like housing and commercial real estate. And the first thing that you started to focus in on were, were roofs, sustainable roofs, if I'm not mistaken, right? Kind of early in the career. Like why roofs of all things versus solar panels or, you know, alternative energy sources or something? I mean, what, what was it about roofs that made you kind of get into um, it? You know, so we, we did efficiency within buildings and we would upgrade HVAC and lighting and such. Um, but what we found is, and this is, you know, this is 20 years ago where most roof systems were asphalt. Well, think about an asphalt parking lot when you walk across it, mm -hmm. you know, it's when it's sunny out, it's 30, 40, 50 degrees above ambient. Well, right. roofing, roofing materials were always traditionally built out of the same material so that the building would get really hot and that, that heat has to go somewhere. It goes inside of the building. If you use a, a, a reflective emissive material that stays cool all the time or close to ambient, that heat never has a chance to go into the building. And when we did some of the initial studies with the California Energy Commission, they actually came out and put sensors on the building, sensors on the HVAC. And in some cases, we had 50% savings on cooling costs in those facilities. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so we could we could do an HVAC upgrade that would get maybe 5, 10, 15%. But when we did the envelope, we realized sometimes a 50% savings. And, you know, that was a that was a huge, um, you know, kind of aha moment. And then we, you know, we utilized that to build a, additional upgrades. We we would daylight buildings. So we put in skylights, we would put in lights with sensors, you know, trying to cut down those energy costs overall. But also in, it also increases the health of the building, the longevity of the building, the life cycle. Um, there's a lot of cost add benefits um, when you put in infrastructure correctly, whether it's a roof system or uh, a microgrid infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So, okay, perfect. And then that, so that experience, right, kind of built, built from, um, built, <laughs> pun intended, uh, no pun intended, but the built into or kind of springboarded into your platinum companies, which looks to me like that was sort of the precursor to what you're doing now in um in 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 the microgrids right the mavericks microgrids but talk to me a little bit about that because it's you know energy efficient projects that you morphed into something you know spending a good deal of time here too it looks like seven eight yeah. years yeah, yeah you know so when when we start when we started doing solar I actually worked at a, a national company and we had clients all over the u.s and mm -hmm. my my region was western u.s and that's right when solar was kind of taking off and 
we we had all these national accounts and we started getting a lot of calls from the accounts, but also from a lot of the material manufacturers that we worked with complaining that solar con- solar companies were coming out and, and creating is- warranty issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we actually ended up being an installation partner for multiple solar companies because we could go out and we could install the solar on a roof or in a, in a facility and do it in a way that didn't void warranties, didn't damage the buildings because we knew how to build things quickly and efficiently. And so we became an installation partner and then we ended up launching a, a national solar division. And But at the time I was traveling a bunch and my kids were younger and so I got a little bit tired of that. Um, I got offered a position at a local Bay Area company um, to come in and join them. Uh, and I, you know, we basically bought them out. We built the company up from a few million dollars a year to $30 million within about a three-year period of time. Wow. And, uh, you know, during that time, I also uh, developed about eight different patents to be able to attach uh, solar to roofing structures and buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we essentially did it in a way that uh, utilized the existing building materials. So it was mm-hmm. integrated with the systems that were already on the buildings, didn't void any warranties. And it also cut our installation costs down. So we were able to, you know, again, do it cheaper, quicker, faster, better um, than a lot of the competition. Right. right. And, uh, you know, we we at one point in time, we were installing about a million square feet of, of building envelopes, insulation, upgrades, and solar uh, on these facilities a month. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and let me let me let me jump in. So there's there's a larger strategic play here, and I'm going to sort of connect the dots at a very high level, right? And, and I see this in your in your probably colleague or semi counterpart or you know brethren uh, Elon Musk in what he's doing with Solar City and whatnot, right? So my head it is, you know, you're talking about developing alternative, you know, uh, sources of energy, in this case, solar, we'll focus on for the moment in the home, and then pushing that energy back to the grid where it's, you know, stored and distributed for general use, right? But going back to the whole concept of the infrastructure is old and needs replacing, there's not a very good way to do that wholesale without incrementally going ironically from the end user, creating and generating power, and then starting to push that back onto the grid and then starting to replace the grid incrementally, leading to what could be called microgrids. Right. So again, there's a hidden and not so obvious or kind of semi-obvious question in there, which is, you know, did you start to see the dots connecting on how to do a wholesale infrastructure replacement through solar panel installations in homes and yada, yada, yada. Go go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, That's, you know, that's, that's actually one of the reasons we're so focused on the space. Um, You know, and so if we, if we look at one of our example clients, so we work with, we work with residential all the way through conduct, commercial, industrial, and even municipalities, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so on a, on a, like a food processor site. So we have some food processor clients, they use a lot of energy, but, Mm -hmm they are seasonal both by day and by year. And mm-hmm. what that means is that they have really high uses of energy and they have really low uses of energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we do is we build a system that can create that energy at the high point, mm-hmm. but has access energy at the low point. So we mm-hmm. have that available. The other, the other issue with a lot of people right now, whether it's, whether it's at your home or in a commercial industrial building is 
the utility can't get the power there. Um, so mm-hmm. we have, we have, we're, we're in California now. I'm in mm-hmm. Northern California, which is PG&E region. Everybody hates PG&E because they're starting fires and turning off the grid all the time. Um, we have customers that have been told by the utility that they can't get them power upgrades until 2025. Right now, these customers want to convert some of their vehicles to electrification. And in some cases, they have fleets of a thousand plus vehicles that might be a small, small pickup truck all the way through a a semi truck. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you think about a site that needs maybe 100 vehicles that are somewhere between 100 kilowatt and 500 kilowatts worth of energy, you're talking about a small city at that location. Mm -hmm. Well, we need to be able to to put all the energy generation, the energy storage and everything else on the infrastructure basis that can charge those vehicles and supply power to that site. Mm-hmm. When those vehicles are not being charged or the facility is you know, in its low energy usage during the evening or in the off season, we can sell that excess power to the grid. Right. We can actually virtually net meter it and sell it to other customers. Um, and if you do enough of those, you can actually create grid support in a region. You can do a lot of different things. So, you know, you talk about Musk, that's kind of one of his plans where recently, uh, Tesla just got approved to do energy trading in Texas. Um, essentially they've, you know, they're deploying a whole bunch of batteries. They're essentially selling power in between these batteries and between customers. We're using the same strategy, um, but we're focused on, you know, we're focused on the, the, the customer site providing power at that site. And then, you know, we create additional monetization um, by selling that excess power. But when we do it at the site, um, we're essentially decarbonizing their site. And Mm -hmm. because we're charging their vehicles, we're decarbonizing the supply chain at the same time. So if that in the, in the, in the case of an ag customer, when they're taking their vehicle and they're going out to the field to check that field, if it's ready for crop or it just needs an inspection, that small pickup truck can be powered by EV that's powered by the site. Mm-hmm. If it's a fleet truck that's doing local route, same thing. So now all of a sudden what we're doing on the electrical side, and we have a, we have a dashboard reporting system that the customer can tie into and they can see what their carbon footprint is. They can see what their energy usage is. And just on the energy usage side, we typically save customers five to ten percent at their site. Sure. Within fuel savings, we can save twenty to thirty percent because we can generate electricity much less expensively than they can buy fuel. The other thing that we do is we fix that cost over a twenty-year period of time. So if mm-hmm. you think about it from a operational perspective, they've got a fixed cost of energy and they've got a fixed cost of fuel for thirty years. What's the fuel cost been over the last 12 months? It's, it's yeah, right. crazy, right? It's up right. and down. It's all over the place. I mean, here, I just paid, I think, $5 a gallon oh, in, yeah. my, in my combustion engine vehicle. Right. You know, so it's, uh, you know, so so we're doing a lot of different things in that space. We're actually working with a, uh, a development company that's doing 3D printed homes. Oh, wow. Um, we, have a, we have a project in Virginia um coming up that's 200 homes uh we're we're going to be building a, a microgrid or a virtual power plant for the home so each home will have solar storage and ev charging um mm-hmm. so you know we're going to and we also will have uh smart circuit breakers for the home so 
the homeowner will know exactly how much energy they're being, how much energy is being used. The energy in the vehicle that's traveling down the road will be provided at a, at a lower cost than what they can get their fuel for. It'll also keep their, their home on all the time. Um, you know, so in the case of an emergency or a cat catastrophic event, the community itself is within a microgrid, but each home has a certain amount of storage and energy generation itself. Um, right. So they're 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 each independent, but it's interdependent as well. Right, and so so a great great segue for me. So I want to kind of focus in or in on the concept of a microgrid because again, you kind of flew over it. And the term is being bandied about quite a bit these days. Yep. It's not complicated, but I'd love to hear your definition so people can understand exactly what is a microgrid and why is that important today? Yeah, you know, so the microgrid really has a, it has multiple components. It has a controller, which, yep. uh, you know, essentially is watching everything that's being generated. Um, typically, it has some energy storage and we we design systems so that we're what's called behind the meter. Okay. So what that means is we have our own control system, we've got a battery system, and then we've got energy generation assets behind mm -hmm. that microgrid controller. That microgrid controller and the battery are tied to the outside grid and the inside grid. On the inside grid, we have energy generation assets that may be wind, solar, fuel cell, waste to energy, really doesn't matter. Um, but what does matter is making sure that we know what's going on within that system, optimizing the load and providing the energy over time. Um, mm -hmm. You know, these really good microgrid controllers, not only are they built by, you know, large companies that have been in the electrical infrastructure space, but they also have a, a fair amount of software, machine learning and AI to them. Mm -hmm. So that over time, they can learn the patterns of not only the energy production, but the usage of the facility, the usage of the vehicles, and they're able to optimize that load. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what I mean by that is if we have solar, uh, the system will actually look at the weather pattern, see if it's going to be extra cloudy uh, the next day, make sure that the batteries are charged up, um, depending on the energy assets that we have in that, it may, it may use fuel cell per, for part of that day, or it may use another technology for part of that day to build some of the base load, or mm -hmm. it may just use energy storage where it's putting more energy into the storage that day so because it knows it's going to have a deficiency the next day mm -hmm. you know so there's a lot of controls and so if you go back to our original conversation around the grid right the grid can't do that right absolutely and so the, so let me go back and i'm going to sort of uh, uh rephrase what you just said but a microgrid at the end of the day can be something you know just it, it, it is it, it is a small you know, a uh, grid onto itself. And it could be as small as a form factor as a home, right? I don't know if we get smaller than that, but the elements are you need to generate power, you need to store power, and then you need to be able to deliver power back to the primary grid. I mean, if, right. if I were to sort of right. couch of what a microgrid is, right? But yeah. it could be as small as a car. I mean, Technically, I could probably look at a bike and someone biking, and that could be a microgrid because they're generating power. Maybe there's battery storage on the bike, and you plug it right. in and push that power back to the grid. But a microgrid, and so microgrids themselves are in a way of kind of instead of doing this large infrastructure, east west United States build out, is actually go out to the end users, right? right develop these microgrids, start to deploy them, and in effect begin to backward. Uh, upgrade the grid itself because what you're describing as well too, which I think is also a lot of people don't realize, is that 
you know, solar power, you know, a lot of times we put these solar panels on and we're generating today way more power than we can consume in our home. So instead of letting that power go to waste, you store it somewhere and then deliver it back to the grid, just like you're describing, right? But that could be solar, that could be wind, that could be, you know, whatever. It's just you happen to be focused on solar and I guess wind right now. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, the other thing about it too, is if you have enough microgrids where it's really just this little independent mini grid, like you described, if you have enough of them together, you can sell power in between them. And that becomes what's known as a virtual power plant. Um, You know, and you can do a lot of different things in that aspect. And, um, you know, we're kind of in a space right now where the technology is ahead of the legislation, just like always happen go, go, go figure last, <laughs> 20, 20 years or so <laughs> right, right, right. Um, you know so a lot of times do we have to, we have to play catch up um we work with a couple of groups that work in the european markets and the european markets are really kind of decentralized already where they have a lot of community-based grids mm-hmm. and they're able to do a lot of a lot of virtual net metering and virtual power plants uh, much more easily than we can here in the U.S. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a lot of regulatory compliance where you have to go. If you want to be able to sell power through through the grid, obviously you have to pay transmission fees, but you have to get all kinds of approvals to be able to do that. And it's a, you know, it's kind of a long, arduous process to, to get to that point. Um, There are some, there are some technology partners out there that are, kind of going out and paving the way to get that pre-approval so you can just onboard your energy assets into those systems so that you can mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. Pl- almost plug and play energy um, yep. is where, where it will go in the next few years. Yep, yep. Now, okay, so then that brings us actually kind of forward into Mavericks microgrids, right? So that that's a you know relatively new venture for you. It's all the things that we've been talking about. And as of right now, um, maybe you can just help us, you know, describe a little bit, you know, kind of what you guys are focused on. I, you know, is it homes? Is it commercial? Is it all of the above? You know, what's the core technology that kind of sits in there? Because it's it's a compilation of all these things. It sounds sure. like you got some stuff on how to um, uh, efficiently capture energy from the sun. I'm assuming you also have some ability to store all that, right? Yeah. And then obviously deliver it back into the grid. So yeah, I'll let you. Yeah. So, you know, our company, we, we are, we are agnostic on the technology somewhat. And what I mean by that is that, um, and I I've always been kind of agnostic, but we don't, we don't have one preferred panel Mm -hmm. on on solar, for example, but we use what's known as tier one panels. Those are, those are panels that have under undergone a certain testing rigor. They've been proven. They have accelerated aging studies, um, we know what they're going to produce over that 20 to 30 year period of time. They're mm-hmm. a warrantable system. Um, same thing with energy storage or wind or fuel cell, you know, whatever components we use within the system, mm-hmm. um, we're fine. We're fairly agnostic. Um, you know, on the technology side, uh, we have our, we have a microgrid control partner that we use. That's a, that's a large um, electrical manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Um, but we put, uh, kind of our own special sauce in it in that um, we have some technologies that improve grid efficiency. Okay. Uh, and also, you know, we're doing things a little bit different because we're not just generating the electricity, but we're going all the way out through the vehicle and, and the facility. So we've got some smart panel technology that enables us to see what's going on on energy usage within a building or within a vehicle and match those loads and and know what those loads need to do over time mm-hmm. um you know so that's that's kind of what we do but one of the things that really makes it possible is that we use 
consumption to be able to finance those mechanisms. Mm-hmm. You know, and what I mean by that is if we look at a facility that maybe uses a million dollars a year worth of electricity mm-hmm. over a 20 year period of time, and this is this is typical across the US, most most utility companies will raise rates right. five to six percent a year. So that million dollars today in 20 years is in, is going to increase you know, 6% annually every single year. So the And compounded at that. So all of a sudden, you know, it's, it, it, what you might straight line at 20 million turns into a $40 million, you know, lifetime. Exactly. You know, so it's a, so it's a fair amount of cost and it's, and it's typically a cost that a customer doesn't think they can control. Right. Well, you know, what we do is we actually use the mechanism to be able to control that. And what I mean by that is that we look at that, we look at that million dollars we know how much energy is being used out of that, how many kilowatt hours are being used out of that million dollars, 15 cents, 10 cents, 5 cents a kilowatt hour, whatever it is. We reverse engineer how many kilowatts we need to develop on the site. Um, we look at the highs and lows of energy production, figure out what the maximum is, what the minimum is, and design systems to be able to hit those profiles. And then we use different types of financing. We use uh, investment tax credit, which has been used in the energy space for a long time. Um, you know, we use other we use other mechanisms. We're actually working with a group right now, raising some green bonds um, mm-hmm. for some of our projects. Um, and uh, you know, right now there's also a lot of uh, carbon offsets available and other potential carbon credits available that we're that we're utilizing. Um, so we, you know, we kind of stack all the different finance mechanisms, and then we provide that power to the customer. At a, instead of a million dollars, it might be nine hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and instead of a six percent escalator, it's going to be a one to two percent escalator over time. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, if we're if we're selling it at nine hundred thousand dollars per year, but we know that we're going to create excess energy on top of that, on um, right. excess revenue, we actually can give the customer a rebate off of some of that excess revenue, so it can drive that nine hundred thousand dollars maybe down to eight hundred thousand dollars per year or or lower depending upon the system. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's really. You know, we we work in partnership with the customer because we're going to be there for 20 years providing energy and energy infrastructure for them. Um, so we want to make sure that not only what we're doing today works for them today, but works for them over that 20 year period of time. And so, you know, we we're we try to future proof what we do. Um, yeah, which makes it. Makes total sense. So let me let me dive in on two things. One, you also mentioned so carbon credits. That's an interesting topic right now, um, in the sense that carbon credits have been around for a while. Um, they kind of didn't. They kind of missed the mark about 10, 15 years ago when they first kind of came on the scene. Um, and and so they're, in a way, they're being reintroduced. Let's call it carbon credits 2.0 or 3.0 or whatever you want to call it today. How do you view carbon credits in your work? Is that something that you guys sell because you have? Uh, what a lot of people look for in true carbon credits, which is a direct path to um, sustainability or alternative energies. Um, it's a self-sustaining project that's being invested in, meaning, you know, you've you got 20, 40 year life, you know, uh, spans here. You're looking right. at homes. These things aren't like forests or things like that that could be planted, but then, you know, cleaned out later. Um, so you've got a lot of what goes into what we're now calling high quality or, you know, verified carbon credits. But let me stop there for a second. How are you guys looking at carbon credits? Do you use them directly? Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah. So, you know, so we, we have, um, you know, so we have like credits and offsets, um, you know, so within what we do on, on, if we're developing energy on site and, and it's renewable and, you know, so we do renewable and we shoot for always on renewable, which means that we're 24 seven renewable. That mm-hmm. that's, that's a strategy of, you know, solar's great during the day, but during the evening, it doesn't do so great. So we have to balance right. what we do. Um, right. and you know, so we, every kilowatt hour that we generate, if we're totally carbon neutral, um, like here in California, the average kilowatt hour is about nine pounds of CO2 because mm-hmm. we're not a hundred percent renewable in California. About half the energy we get is carbon intensive in an area like Virginia, the, the kilowatt hour is about two pounds per kilowatt hour. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the example of the home projects that we're doing down there, we're projecting that each home is going to use about 12,000 to 15,000 kilowatt hours per year. Mm-hmm. That's 24,000 to 30,000 pounds of CO2 offset that's affected by creating the right energy strategy for that home. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that 30,000 pounds, uh, you know, that's about, about 15 tons of CO2 offset uh, mm-hmm. in the market. Mm-hmm. Um, there's markets available right now for those offsets. Um, and, you know, you can go out and you can sell them for anywhere between 15 and $50 a ton. Um, depending upon the markets that you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is right now is there is some legislation in California, Massachusetts, Oregon, and Washington uh, around vehicle electrification because mm-hmm. on a per mile basis, uh, you know, just in a consumer vehicle, it's about nine pounds per mile of, of CO2 on average if you convert a vehicle from gas to, to electricity. And that's based on average mile per per gallon of of vehicles in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there's what's known as low carbon fuel standard credits available in in all those markets, and and it's kind of going into other markets as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we kind of take that strategy on the energy side, but also on the vehicle side, combine those offsets, and you know, we can sell those into the markets. The other thing that we do is uh, on larger projects, we have waste to energy projects that generate what's what's known as carbon negative power. Um, now, the way that that works essentially is we're taking a waste product um, mm-hmm. and that waste product could be uh, biogas from a waste treatment plant. It could be uh, digestive from a dairy farm. It can even be woody biomass. It can even be tires in some, some situations. So we're taking that product and the systems that we use are uh, you typically pyrolysis or anaerobic digestion in that case. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they essentially heat that biomass up or they heat that product up to a certain point and they combust it, but they're super efficient in combustion where they don't allow that CO2 to recap to escape. So we're, we're essentially recirculating that exhaust gas so that it burns. It creates heat, which mm-hmm. we utilize. It creates electricity, which we utilize and then it actually typically creates byproducts. Um, if it's a pyrolysis system, it'll create a biochar byproduct. Um, if it's if the input is a uh, so there's a company that we know that uh, they they take bamboo mm-hmm. and convert it into biochar for plant materials. Um, so and when you say sorry, to, just so I can ask the question, biochar specifically though, right? Which is obviously kind of I'm just imagining kind of this black mass of stuff. Because it's just been burned, what do you do with the biochar? Is it so? Is it yeah? 
Yeah. So, so biochar, if it's, if it's, if it's derived from a plant material, they, they will use it into a plant nutrient. Um, it can, it can go into soil. Um, and it has a super interesting structure in that a very small piece has a real large surface area for plants. What that means is there's a lot of nutrients. So it's, it's, you're essentially taking, let's think about a a ton Mm -hmm. of carbon-based material and com- and combusting it and basically capturing all that CO2 and concentrating it into about 10% mass. Mm-hmm. So one ton, you can make like 200 pounds of biochar, but that means that every pound has about 10 pounds of CO2 in it almost, right. depending on what you're, what you're utilizing. That CO, that, that carbon, when you put it into the ground, it'll sequester that into the soil permanently um, mm. And they've done a lot of studies around it where it'll increase plant nutrients because it's got that structure. So mm-hmm. plant nutrients are able to bond to it. You can reduce water usage. And most importantly, you're able to sequester CO2 using that. And that's one of the ways that it gets to that carbon negative uh, manner because you're taking a, you're taking a fuel input and you're you're gaining energy out of it, but you're also gaining a product that, you know, increases the the health of the environment for the plant. Right. Um, right. If you're, uh, oh yeah. So, so I was going to jump in for a quick second because again, I mean, so much stuff is going on here and you're, you're at the forefront of so many things that people, well, A, we've been talking about for a long time, but now people are taken much more seriously. So as you are now kind of developing this and pushing this biochar, I mean, you know, talk about circular. Right. I mean, this is the ultimate of circular economy right. where we're trying to kind of, you know, if we pull something out of the ground, you want to use it until it literally there's nothing left or you're putting it back in in a way that, like you just described, is biochar. Right. It's, right. it's actually very healthy to the ecosystem. Right. Uh, right. And so I, I still think we're learning a lot about what that means, though. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we we are. And, you know, it's it's interesting, though, I we we work with a lot of companies that are bringing these technologies from the European market. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so when we talk about anaerobic digestion, you know, we're essentially digesting biological matter, turning that into water, plant nutrients, biogas, and energy. Mm-hmm. Now, those technologies have been in the European market for 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. We don't have a lot of large-scale anaerobic digestion in the U.S. Some of the companies that are now coming in have maybe one or two locations here in the U.S., but the technology has been proven for 20-plus years over there. Mm-hmm. Same, in, same in pyrolysis. And one of the reasons is they have less land mass. They're more concentrated. They have to be more efficient. Um, and so they've, they've been focused more on sustainability just as a necessity than we have here in the U.S., where we, you know, we have wide open space. We can go do whatever we want. We can throw it in the ground. It doesn't matter. Right. Um, you know, I've seen I've seen reports in the last few weeks that say, you know, we have we've created something to the effect of two to three times the biomass that exists naturally on the planet wow. out of out of materials. So we've taken materials out of the ground and created garbage essentially, mm-hmm. and and other other materials at a rate of two to three times of the natural environment, you know, so that if you think about it, it's really non-sustainable. And so, you know, we do really need to get to that circular type of economy. And that's, you know, that's where these waste to energy technologies become really interesting because you can re-input that and 
you know, recreated into another use potentially. I mean, ultimately we've got to get to biodegradable, got to get rid of plastics and everything else. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, we look at, we look at some of those technologies because um, they can create, you know, clean, effective uh, 24 seven clean energy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so let's, let's segue back into Mavericks here for a second. So now if we really, and and so many different things going on here and, and I mean, I honestly could spend hours with you here and I'm sure we'll have many conversations, but let's talk now about the, because at the end of the day, you're really, your mission, if I were to sort of simplify it a little bit is to, in essence, rebuild the energy grid, you know, from the, from the, the, the sort of outside in. Right, meaning microgrids kind of into the main main area, um, and and so the question I'm getting to is is you know as you look at the current state of microgrids both domestically and internationally, I mean it just makes all the sense in the world, right? So, what is it besides consumer adoption that is slowing down microgrids themselves being propagated into the marketplace today? Is it just just misinformation or just just people don't know? Yeah, so it's you know some of it's technology constricted. It it has been um, you know on the energy storage side, it's taken to this point where energy storage has started to become more cost effective. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the technologies are not out there, mm-hmm. and it's it's sort of like solar was back in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. That it's fairly new and people don't totally understand it. Um, right. You know, when when we were doing solar back in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Uh, we would go out and do like five, six Walmarts in a, in a few weeks. And and then I was, I'd go talk to a commercial customer here in the Bay area that was, you know, maybe a small manufacturer. We were going to put in a hundred kilowatt system for his site. And he's, well, I don't know if solar works. And I said, well, you know, we just, we just went and did 10 Walmarts. It's working for them. So I know right. it's going to work for you. And they'd be like, oh, okay. Um, right. You know, and it's, it's, uh, you know, that's kind of how we are is until we see somebody doing something, it's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Right. Totally. So, so, and I, but I believe given the emphasis on microgrids, and the concept, which is really, I mean, they've been around for a while, but they're starting to take hold. The term microgrid, that's why I was kind of asking you about it specifically because we've got definitions for it. But honestly, people's homes can become microgrids. People themselves oh, yeah. as consumers can decide not only putting, you know, I'm actually creating the stepping stone for the vision of replacing the entire grid itself, right? And my participation isn't just choosing to use solar, which, by the way, is honestly price per kilowatt commensurate with regular energy today, right? If not cheaper, but I'm also putting in the infrastructure that enables the transition to a new future grid, whatever that looks like, right? That's, that's actually sustainable. Um, So, I mean, to me, it feels like more of a PR game right now, a bit of a marketing game just to get people to adopt. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. But at the same time, you know, if you look at what's going on just on the vehicle electrification side, if, if we don't, uh, put microgrid structure in, like mm-hmm. for your home, for example, um, you know, you could go in and let's say everybody in your neighborhood put solar and everybody got electric vehicles. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. If you don't have that energy to storage to go along with it and the power goes down, now all of a sudden you don't have power for your for your home oh, and you absolutely. can't go anywhere with your vehicle. Right, absolutely. You know, and that's that's why microgrids are really critical because the the coupling you know microgrid essentially you're coupling the control the energy storage and the energy generation that allows you to stay online regardless 
Mm-hmm. That's super critical when we start electrifying vehicles, because if you think about think about a police department, yep. if, if a police department is not fully electrified, you know, if they're fully electrified and they don't have their own grid infrastructure and they can't charge their vehicles and there's an emergency, they're sitting in the parking lot. Totally. Um, you know, so there's there's a lot of things that need to take place to be able to get to the point where what everybody's talking about on the electrification side and, you know, it's we just don't have the infrastructure to support what is coming um, over the next, you know, 10 to 15 years. And and let me ask a, a, a sort of an energy supply chain question. Right. So as of right now, we've been talking about renewables. Currently, you're focused on solar, which obviously makes a lot of sense. But as you said, you're, I'm assuming you're agnostic to whatever renewable energy yep. source might come along. Are there other energy sources that you're seeing in the portfolio? So the obvious one, solar, wind, uh, thermal. Um, you know, I'm seeing a lot of stuff now with, I actually think it's gravitational yep. energy creation, but you know, people talk about a, a, a wave you know, generator, which is really gravity at the end of the day, but, but I'll, I'll yep. leave that aside. It's probably too science fiction-y for a lot of people, but I think for you, you get it. But I actually think we're moving towards a gravitational-based energy generation system. Um, yep. But we're at the very early stage. So question is, what other you know, renewable energies are on both here now and then on the horizon that you're seeing, right, uh, that, that's interesting? Yeah, you know, I think the gravitational is interesting. There's there's one company that's essentially building large towers and they're during the day they're they're lifting the lifting the weight in those towers up to the top. And then during the evening, they release slowly and that generates electricity. Um, I've seen another one recently that is using rail, like a rail car type system, um, mm-hmm. where during the day they're pulling they're pulling these rail cars up the hill, and at night they release them, and then they generate electricity slowly as they come down the hill. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, Caterpillar actually came out with a very large uh, uh, truck, you know, that's in in the mining industry, mm-hmm. and what they're doing is is. I think it's like one megawatt of electricity to go up the hill and it generates seven megawatts as it comes down. Um, you know, so they're, wow. they're basically they're they're mining at the top, they're loading up right. that vehicle, and as right. it comes down, it's generating electricity that that provides power to the site. That's um, cool. You know, so there's a there's a lot of things going on like that. Um, you know, we're actually working with a uh company that has a small uh turbine that can generate up to 15 kilowatt hours of electricity. It's like eight feet tall. Um, they have some proprietary technology around essentially the generator at the bottom, which is really a sophisticated alternator. Um, it can it can operate in low as five to 10 mile an hour winds um, and you know up to 70, 80 miles an hour without an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there's some there's some smaller technologies that we're seeing uh you know and and you know when we look at like vehicles um you know just electrified vehicles they're super efficient um you know as far as an energy mm-hmm. usage um you know when you compare an electric vehicle to combustion you know you think about combusting fuel most of the energy in that combustion is actually going out through heat of the car so you're mm-hmm. not really mm-hmm. generating a lot of momentum in an electric vehicle it's going from the battery to the motor to the wheel um, there's not there's not a lot of waste there. Um, mm-hmm. micro, microgrids are kind of the same as well. When we look at when we look at the grid, 
of what's been built, centralized grid structure. You have a big power plant in one location that's pushing energy miles and miles and miles down that road. There, the, the loss of that energy can be up to 60% by the time it gets to the customer. Um, it, because what happens is you're pushing electricity through that, through that wire. There's resistance in that wire, and so you lose energy in that process. When we generate electricity at the site, it's being used at the site. We're not, we're, we're not losing it through transmission. Right. You know, it's much more efficient to be able to do that. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, well, so, 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 uh, okay. So let's now kind of look a little bit forward with not only what you're doing, actually, well, let me ask you a quick question. So one of the energies that I'm, and I just want your opinion on this one is nuclear, right? There's, there's been a lot, I see it, you know, it's one of these energy sources that a lot of people get a little bit heebie-jeebie over, but it's changed a lot over 30, 40, 50 years. It's gotten a bad rap, in my opinion. I mean, I'll freely admit I have a bit of a bias towards it. How do you see nuclear coming in or will it come back into the portfolio? Because, quite frankly, energy generation, again, to be uh, blunt, I don't think anyone cares how energy is generated. If If I could tell you that we could generate all the energy based on gravity, well, sure, let's just do that. Right. But all these competing sources of energy generation are just that. Right. I mean, it, it, if one became the, the one ring to rule them all, we'd use it. But we use all these different ones because of the inefficiencies or efficiencies or whatever the case may be. And nuclear is one of those that could be left behind or could be reintroduced. I'm not sure where it's going to go at this point, you know, because it's, it's right on that tipping point. Yeah, I know, you know, like I know Gates and a lot of other people have been working and looking at that space. I mean, my, my thought is, is that if they could figure out how to essentially neutralize it at the end of its life cycle, yep. you know, I'm all for it. You know, if we can't, if we have to store it for 5 million years or whatever, yeah. you know, then it's not, then it's not really a sustainable, um, you know, process. Right. Um, but if they can figure out how to utilize it, and I know that there's some companies working on technologies that are, um, you know, thorium or other based where it has a, it's a much lower uh, radiation level and it's a, it's a much shorter life cycle. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think that, you know, that definitely has a future. Um, you know, here in California, we have a Diablo nuclear plant and uh, they've been talking about shutting it down for years and it's actually scheduled to be, you know, decommissioned. Well, now they're talking about keeping it online because we don't have the ability right now to replace that energy I, if everybody started putting solar on their home and storage in their home over the next five years, we still wouldn't be able to get to the capacity that that Diablo creates right now. Correct. Um, you know, so we need to we need to have the strategies around how to do what we need to do. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's there's a lot of technologies out there on the energy generation side that are being worked on. There's also a lot of technologies on the energy storage side um, that are being worked on. You know, we're really you know solar. So when I started installing solar in 2008, 2009, uh, uh, average watt panel was like 185, 190 watts per panel. Mm-hmm. 10 years later, we're 400, 500 watts per panel. Um, you know, so the efficiency and the density of energy that we're generating off of these panels has gotten much more efficient over time. Um, we're going to see the same thing in battery technology we're going to probably see some technologies in the next, you know, five to 10 years that, you know, had not even been thought of really. Um, there's one company that 
we're talking to that uh, is out of Australia and they actually have a, a technology that you can retrofit a coal fired power plant and make it burn hydrogen. Um, you know, so it's basically they, they replace the, the boilers within the, within the power plant with a hydrogen based boiler and mm-hmm. you can power that coal fired power plant now on carbon neutral energy. Mm. Um, you know, so there's some things taking place in the space that are, you know, super, super interesting in being able to decarbonize energy. Um, and you know, we need to, we need to get there as quickly as possible. Um, you know, it's, it was 80 degrees, I think three or four days ago here in Santa Cruz, it's December. It's, it's right. relatively nice typically, but it right. shouldn't be 80 degrees. Right, right, right. I hear you. I hear you. So, so uh, again, I'm just looking at the clock here. I want to be conscious of time. Um, you know, these things go so quickly, you blink and all of a sudden the hour's gone by. So, so like I said, I know this, this was going to be a healthy conversation. So just parting thoughts, things, things that you think, you know, are out there sort of in the future, whether it's prognostication or just in the current sense of what's going on, things, you know, maybe some of the things that people don't realize whether it's at Mavericks or just in microgrids or micro technologies. I mean, what, what do you see kind of coming up in the future? You know, I think, I think people, I think the microgrid space and the virtual power plant space is in five or six years is going to be the same place where solar and, and storage, you know, is perceived to be right now, um, you know, yep. to be much more scalable. Um, it, many, many more companies will be doing it. Um, and it's, and it's going to be more of a, uh, you know, kind of a plug and play type of a scenario, similar to where the solar is right now. Um, you know, so it's going to be more scalable. I mean, I think that power is super interesting right now can be democratized. Um, and you know, the reason being is like what we talked about is in some cases we're producing more solar than we can use. And, you know, when you get to a massive scale, what that ends up looking like is, you can sell power super cost effectively and and very low cost. Um, one of the one of the groups that we're working with is actually doing microgrids in Africa. Mm-hmm. They're going into communities that there's no infrastructure, there's no power, and they're starting to set up right. microgrids in these communities. And so what what we really see in the microgrid space is it following the same path that the telecom did where mobile phones went out and they globally expanded much quicker than the the old infrastructure of telecoms did, microgrids are going to start doing the same thing where you're going to see microgrids in all these different markets in all these different spaces. They're going to leapfrog the traditional utilities and the traditional infrastructure that's been built over time. Mm -hmm. Awesome. 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 Well, listen, Bill, uh, as I said, you know, hour flies by incredible conversation. The work you're doing in the microgrid space is super interesting at, at Mavericks. Where do people find out what, what you're up to besides LinkedIn? I mean, I'm assuming you're open uh, for a connection. Yeah. You can go to mavericks.energy uh, okay. and check us out. We just have a landing page there right now, okay. um, you know, and then find, you know, Bill Shevlin on LinkedIn and, uh, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm happy to talk to anybody and, you know, I really appreciate your time, Richard, and what you're doing. Um, you know, making people aware of all these different issues is important. Well, I, I, you know, and I, and I apologize because I was going to do this on, on LinkedIn Live today. We'll but maybe do it the next time. But I, I'm, I'm also trying. I mean, these conversations, you know, are really the foundation for a lot of the change that's happening. And bringing people like yourself together, thought leaders in the space, you know, I think has a huge impact. I mean, I've seen it personally in the area of data centers and what we're able to do yep. and the efficiency gains that we had there. Um, and now we're just trying to bring this into the supply chain, energy kind of space as well. So awesome. Well, listen, really, thank you so much. 
Um, great conversation today. You have a wonderful, wonderful day. You too. Thanks, Richard. This is Richard Donaldson. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments about the episode or topics in supply chain you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at supplychainnext at requis.com. And while you're at it, why not check out the Request platform at supplychain.requis.com. Request allows you to manage the full asset lifecycle in the cloud, collaborating with your entire value network to buy, manage, and sell your assets. Find out more at www.requis.com.